Hello, and we're back with the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast. I'm Sam Abu-Al-Samad, Principal Analyst here with Guidehouse, and today is October 20th, 2022. Um, joined uh, today uh, by Oliver Dixon, Elizabeth Wilson, Mike Austin, and Jake Foose. Uh, welcome, everybody. And um, let's, uh, why don't we start with Mike today? Uh, Mike, uh, you were doing a little traveling yesterday. What, uh, what's going on? Uh, yeah, yesterday I was in Spartanburg, South Carolina with BMW, and they announced a $1.7 billion investment in their plant. So um, if you didn't know, BMW makes cars in Spartanburg. Uh, they actually make all the X cars. So all the SUVs are made in the U.S. They're exported. It's the biggest um, vehicle exporting factory in the U.S. by value for eight years in a row. And they announced it in 1992. I think it was 92. So it's it's been there a long time and, and they just keep expanding it and growing it. So this latest expansion is to retool a couple lines and I think they're adding a building as well to, and um, the CEO of BMW AG was there and he was saying that they're going to have six battery electric vehicles by 2030 built there at the Spartanburg plant. And then they're also going to have, there's an upcoming announcement from a, a battery um uh, sorry, there's there's a couple of houses. They're building a battery cell assembly plant just up the road from Spartanburg, BMW is. And then soon there will be news from one of their battery partners as well relative to the region. So they're putting together, you know, this huge battery uh, investment for the future. But also in terms of scale, it's really interesting because the, the BMW uh, cell assembly pack uh, – building is going to be 30 gigawatt hours, which sounds like a huge number. But, um, you know, if you say 100 gigawatt or 100 kilowatt hours per pack, that works out to 300,000 units a year. So when you when you think of the scale of the electronic, or uh, not electronic, <laughs> the EV transformation in transportation, it's just enormous. You know, you have $1.7 billion essentially to enable 250 to 350,000 units. And, um, I think Sam's announced or Sam's reported previously. There's something like 600 gigawatt hours of announced battery plant capacity coming by 2026. But again, you take the you take two zeros off that. That's six million units, probably a little more because not every car is going to have a hundred kilowatt hour battery pack. But um, you know that doesn't even get us to half of the of the capacity of the current U.S. auto market. So. That was kind of fascinating. Um, the other interesting piece of that is BMW, this is, uh, previously announced, they're going to put their Generation 6 batteries in there, which are large cylindrical batteries, similar to the, the new Tesla ones. So, you know, of all of the different chemistries and configurations people are going with, BMW is, is saying we're going with cylindrical cells, or at least for the next generation, which is probably the next five to 10 years. And um, also, um, you know, because this was a big uh, announcement, uh, they had the governor there and they had Senator Lindsey Graham there. And Senator Graham was actually, it was, I was kind of surprised. He was very, um, very knowledgeable and very, and nothing against Senator Graham himself, I'm just saying a politician in general. You wouldn't expect to understand <laughs> some of the nuance of um, electric vehicles and raw material sourcing. And he, he, I think he spoke pretty well about it. He was, um, he said, you know, we're never going to be able to make a battery that has all of the components made in the U.S. So we're going to need partners. And we're going to need to work on that. Um, you know, saying we need to talk to the utilities and you know figure out how they're going to double their capacity and still meet 
carbon reduction goals. And um, I just thought that was good because it wasn't this sort of, you know, knee jerk thing you see in, in most media, which is either we can, you know, it's impossible to, you know, make electric vehicles or, you know, we have to make electric vehicles or, or we're not going to make it. And he was, was kind of in between. Uh, I was just going to ask, um, I read the, the press release yesterday, but did BMW give you any indication of when, um, when production is expected to start or, you know, when, what the timing is going to be for. Yeah. So these are, um, they're, they have the, the term for the X the SUVs is slightly different, but the, the term BMW is using is Noya class, which is just next generation of their cars, but it's the, it's the battery platform. And, um, the ones in Spartanburg will launch in 2025 for full production in 2026. Okay. Um, and then uh, did they provide um, any other details uh, about the, the relationship with Envision AESC? You mentioned that they had previously announced the um, the intention to use these cylindrical cells for the, the Noya class platform, their, their new EV platform. Um, and in that earlier release, they, they kind of hinted at, uh, that that these would uh, be joint ventures with uh, various suppliers. And I think uh, for Europe, I think they talked about at least uh, CATL was one of their partners for the European plants. Is this going to be a joint venture with Envision or is Envision going to own the cell plant and, and BMW is just going to handle the pack assembly? Um, I'm not sure how the joint venture is, is working and I don't want to... Um... I have to like I haven't I have to look over my notes to look exactly at what um, you know what was announced at the press conference and what's what was sort of like expect this to come, but um, Envision's going to make an announcement. It's a BMW design, mm-hmm. so uh, there's some degree of joint venture, but the the basic arrangement seemed to be that there's going to be someone making the cells and then the BMW. Uh, uh, you know, battery pack assembly is a BMW, a wholly owned BMW operation. Okay. Um, did they provide any other details on the cell design other than that it's a 46 millimeter cylindrical? No. And that's, that's one thing I'm interested to follow up on because they had, I mean, this was mostly a manufacturing announcement, but one of the um, key factors in their cylindrical cell announcement in their previous statements is they're going to use up to 20% recycled material for, uh, I think, lithium, nickel, and cobalt. Although the design is a lower cobalt uh, design than the previous one. But, um, yeah, I'm going to find out who, you know, who they're working with to get that recycled material and and what that process is. Because 20% is actually pretty high given the current Mm -hmm. state of battery recycling. And they said that. So it might not be. There's there's obviously not a lot of of end-of-life batteries available yet to recycle. Um, right. And so it'll, I, I would assume that they probably won't be at 20% recycled material from day one, but their goal is to ramp up to that over time. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, the BMW is switching from prismatic cells that they use today to a cylindrical cell format. And that 46 millimeter seems to be kind of the sweet spot uh, for trying to maximize the energy density of the pack, you know, by getting as much active material in the, in the, uh, in the pack, as much of the volume of the pack being active cell material. Cause obviously if you have smaller cells, like, like Tesla has previously used and some other manufacturers have used, you've got a lot of space taken up by those cans 
and going to a larger cell, you've got less volume taken up by the can and more of the electrodes inside. Right, but you also have more space if you you know if you pack cells into a row. There's a little more space in between, which maybe is advantageous for cooling. But it's, yeah. Overall, yeah, everyone seems to like larger cylindrical cells, even though there's there's some compromises with every design. I do have one other quick battery sure. thing. Sorry, um, but I, I really enjoyed reading it, so I did want to share it. Um, there's a there's an article in Nature called "Fast Charging of Energy Dense Lithium Ion Batteries," and the interesting thing was they were able to run more than a thousand cycles on uh, these batteries with with minimal degradation, and it's in a lab setting. So you know, it, it was anytime you see something in the news of like this battery is here, then you click through and it's like. Someone did, you know, someone did a, a good paper, but it's not usually an industrial setting. So the stuff is a little further off. So, the, you know, when I see that, I say, I, I want to read this. I want to dive into it. Um, but it was really interesting um, on two fronts. Basically, they uh, they had a high porosity anode, so lots of room for um, ions to move in and out. And they used the lithium salt electrode, so a slightly different electrode. And then they um, heated the batteries to 60 degrees Celsius. It was about 150 Fahrenheit. And that seemed to be the trick was the high temperature charging um, helped prevent lithium from building up on the anode. Um, and the, the main interesting thing, though, is that, you know, they did this without really essentially changing the chemical nature of the battery. Like I said, it was, you know, they tweaked the, um, uh, sorry, <laughs> they tweaked the, uh, crystal structure of the of the anode um yeah i mean they, they, they tweak some of the internal components and um but you know this can be done with other chemistry so it just kind of speaks to like there's still gains to be made just in you know learning how batteries work or tweaking the way that we charge and cycle them or you know even just efficiencies in design so when, when you look at the at the overall battery picture there's improvements being made everywhere it's not necessarily like hey we're going to use a bunch of silicon it's there's other places that gains can be made and improvements. Great. All right. Um, Oliver. Sam, hello. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> morning. Um, um, I think uh, 800 pound gorilla in the room time today. Um, <clears throat> older listeners may remember diesel. It was pretty popular um, a little while back. It's... Um, Diesel is beginning to become, I think, a growing problem in Europe again. Um, not least because of the imminent arrival of Euro 7 standards. Now, I'm going to put my hands up and admit immediately that this has completely passed me by. Euro 6, which was is a pretty stringent emission standard, was introduced in 2012. It's been in force for 10 years, and we've kind of gotten used to it. Um, all of a sudden, and a couple of weeks ago, Daimler held a symposium in Brussels, really sort of surrounding the whole zero emission vehicle deal. Um, but one of the key sound bites that came out of that was a comment from the CEO of Daimler Buses uh basically said we're not going to touch euro 7 we're going to focus straight on zero emission vehicles which is <clears throat> you know a not illogical 
stance to adopt as we move towards 2030. Anyway, this has set me and a number of others off thinking, and we've kind of gone and revisited what is going on with uh, European emission standards. Um, Euro 7 was due to be announced last year. It slipped because of COVID. We're now expecting a European Commission document detailing the um, detailing the standards really anytime soon. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things which are entirely probable, uh, well, entirely, not so much entirely probable, but absolutely likely. One is the standard will be technology forcing. Uh, I mean, this is not something that we can achieve by making sure the tyres are inflated. And secondly, it's going to be expensive. The general yardstick within the European truck industry for emissions regulation is, as each one changes, it's a billion euros. So technology forcing and expensive in an environment in which we're all talking entirely reasonably about zero emission vehicles. Now, Daimler has already announced, and this was a couple of years ago, that it would joint venture with Cummins for its medium-duty uh, truck engines should Euro 7 happen. Uh, that's still going ahead. And Daimler also says that it aims to decarbonize 60% of the rolling fleet in Europe by 2030. So that's give or take 40,000 trucks a year. So, I mean, these are Daimler setting itself some pretty strong ambitions here. So within the context of that, I think we really need to try and unpick this from a number of different angles. First of all, is Euro 7 going to happen? Well, the balance of probability is yes. Um, the European Commission and the truck industry are not, it has to be said, the best of friends. Um, frankly, price fixing a few years ago was a very big cross against the truck industry's name, factor in a bit of VW and diesel and, you know, frankly, public sentiment uh, and regulatory sentiment is probably more against than for. Um, secondly, the fact that Euro 6 has been in force for 10 years, which is the longest period without new regulation since the early 1990s, is clearly significant as well. So is it going to happen? Yeah, I guess it will. It'll be relevant, I guess, for about two years, 18 months, maybe. This, the real takeaway from this and the real sort of where this starts to get very tricky very quickly is what does it do to the trading cycle? Uh, with trucks, we talk about total cost of ownership. So clearly, we look at a, a linear chronology. If we look to invest on day one, we need to be looking at the cost on day 1001. Now, if we work this back in terms of residual value, um, what is going to be the value of a Euro 7 truck acquired in three years' time uh, in the context of growing zero emission zones, you know, growing zero emission vehicles, growing um, incentivization for post-diesel engines? The answer is I, the residual is going to be close to zero. So first of all, who's going to fund these things? Secondly, 
if you can find somebody to fund it, why would you buy it? This takes us back to what we're looking at in Europe at the moment in terms of fleet age. I've done a bit of digging on this, and I have to say the figures are not entirely, either there's a fair bit of opacity about European um, truck fleet age, but my sense is that the fleet is older rather than younger, which means, I mean, if you look at, if we look at German Mount data, which is the German road toll, uh, at the moment, 92% of Mount mileage uh, for semi-trucks, for articulated trucks is Euro 6, and 6% is Euro 5. So 6% is 10 years or 10 years or more older. Uh, if we look at the sort of the lighter trucks, it's 90% Euro 6 and 10% of the vehicles. So you've got within that data set some indications of pretty aging fleet. At some point, you know, these things are not going to be amenable to being gaffer taped together and sort of sent out to work again. They're going to need to be replaced. Now, I, I think that this is this is going to put people in a real quandary because, you know, clearly a truck needs to be fit for purpose, so it needs to work. Um, a 10-year-old semi is really beginning to stretch its metal a bit. Um, what is the buying decision here? The buying decision, I would guess, you know, where everything else to remain equal is you go straight from Euro 6 to electric, ZEV. Um, at the moment, that choice is straight from Euro 6 to battery electric. Now, we've spoken in the past on these calls about the possibility stroke danger of truck buyers coalescing around battery technology to the detriment and exclusion of hydrogen technology. This looks like something that could accelerate that process quite markedly. So, you know, TLDR, I think what we're seeing here is possibly significantly disruptive, both to the income statements of the European OEMs. I mean, this is going to really put some pressure on their R&D numbers. But at the same time, it could well draw forward uh, adoption of ZEVs on the basis that they are available. And if it does have that effect, then the coalescence around battery becomes more rather than less likely. Um, early days, it's predi- I mean, this hypothesis is predicated on a number of different issues and a number of different moving parts. But, you know, it is, it falls into the category of one more complication and arguably a very significant complication as well. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it's going to be a, a very challenging period over the next several years for both the manufacturers as well as truck buyers uh, trying to determine what to do. Um, if the if the Euro Seven standard is is going to be that stringent, um, yeah, there there doesn't seem like there will be much of a business case for either development of Euro Seven vehicles or um, uh, or fleets to to purchase those vehicles. Yeah, I mean, part of the. <laughs> Part of the issue of TCO, of total cost of ownership, is 
the issue of trade equity, the issue of residual. And that that's not just uh, that's doesn't fall into the nice to have category. That's absolutely central to the financial health of the fleet. If you get on the wrong side of trade equity, if you fall off the trading cycle roundabout, the buy-in to get back to it is very, very expensive. It's not <clears throat> like for like. It's probably, I, I don't know, I hazard guess, 20% premium to actually get back to um, to an even playing field with your peer group if you, if you get this wrong. So, you know, it, it is... The potential to make a very significant mistake here is um, is pretty large. It has to be said. Um, as for you know Euro Seven and its value, I, I mean we can all take a view on this. Um, I have to say it doesn't surprise me. I think what one one of the fears would have to be that. You know, Euro 7 is read at a headline level by, example, municipalities. London's ultra-low emission zone comes to mind. And all of a sudden, you know, delete Euro 6, add Euro 7, and start, you know, penalising the use of a vehicle which is one emissions level behind that which is current. So... Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which this can create some significant issues. And I have to say, and I've tried very hard to find some some silver linings to the cloud. Um, I don't see any way in which it can be of of benefit really to anybody. Um, It's, you know, it, it may drive forward the adoption of zero emission vehicles, but that's you know, assuming that those zero emission vehicles exist as a viable substitution for a diesel vehicle in the near term. Sam, it's a very tricky one. It's not the first time something like this has happened with commercial vehicles. It probably won't be the last time. Uh, But as I say, it is certainly an added complication to an environment which is already, as we all know, fraught with complexity. What uh, what is the probable time frame for zero euro seven to uh, go into effect? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> my my sense is to, the the period of applicability will be post twenty seven. Now, what usually happens is there is a staged introduction in that um, for all new truck models. Uh, we will see introduction in year one for existing truck models. We will see introduction in year two. So let us say, for example, um, if Volvo launches an FH model in 2027, uh, sorry, in 2026, then um, it will gain a year's derogation. If it launches a new model, um in 2027 it will have to be euro 7 so um if this goes the distance we will probably see first of all uh, uh, probably a lot of uh, activity on the powertrain front ahead of this 
um, just to try and ba ba basically derogate uh, Euro 7. But traditionally, the way operators have gotten around this is pre-buying ahead of the regulatory change. And obviously, pre-buying ahead of the regulatory change doesn't really mitigate the, the residual issue. So, yeah, um, probably 2027 is going to be the year to watch. But until we actually get something firm on paper from the European Commission, you know, it, it's, it could be 26. It might not even happen. Who knows? Yeah. Well, it's uh, inter interesting times for the trucking industry in Europe and, and frankly, everywhere, but, uh, but particularly in Europe. Hmm. Well, I think as well, Sam, the other thing that really <clears throat> this needs to shine a very bright light on, and it's something that I haven't really heard discussed, you know, I, I, I really haven't heard discussed beyond, you know, sort of almost sort of giveaway sound bites, but, you know, at some point we're going to be in a post-diesel era. Um, and that... You know, that's all well and good, but there are an awful lot of diesel trucks running around European highways at the moment, an awful lot of diesel trucks running around North American highways right now. You know, what what are we going to do with them? Um, where do they go? You know, it's, uh, you know st storage alone is going to be a significant issue. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think, you know, we as analysts have a, a tendency to look for the, the quickest route between two points. Um, and that's not unreasonable. But I think, you know, that this just really sort of provides, you know, additional context as to just how complicated the next decade is going to be. It's not just changing from one to the other. It's changing an awful lot of other stuff as well. All right, then uh, thank you, Oliver. Uh, let's move on to Edie. Um, I was just saying that uh, I guess about at the beginning of October, the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO as it's more commonly called, um, that division of the UN met for their 41st assembly session. So that's um, 193 countries involved. And they meet once at least every three years. And then on October 7th, that group adopted a long-term aspirational goal of net zero carbon emissions um, in the aviation industry by 2050. Um, this type of agreement has never happened before. So it's a big milestone, but I'll start by talking about what it doesn't do. Um, it doesn't include any non-CO2 related emissions. So that's stuff like contrails, which of course could have really negative environmental impacts. There's no benchmarks and there's no real carrots or sticks. So of course, um, a lot of people are saying, oh, this is just a nice aspiration, but it doesn't actually have any teeth to it. That said, I think that it align like what it does do is it aligns with a lot of country and regional goals. So for example, this aligns with what the EU is proposing with refuel EU. Um, and then with the US specifically, um, there's been a lot of investment in research and development around 
electric flights, um, using hydrogen for flights, and of course, sustainable aviation fuel for flights, which is probably the most um, practical for longer flights at this point and um, the most, I guess, what we could see being used. Um, so the U.S. specifically already has their SAF, or that's Sustainable Aviation Fuel Grand Challenge, with the goal of 3 billion gallons of SAF being produced um, by the year 2030. Um, and going along with this UN um, ICAO goal, the U.S. in the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a lot of incentive around decarbonizing the aviation industry, specifically when it comes to SAF, there's the tax credit of $1.25 um, with one cent for each percentage beyond a 50% reduction of petroleum-based fuel for aviation sold or used. Um, and we've seen a lot of investment into these pilot projects around SAF production. I think Breakthrough Energy just invested $50, or $50 million in a Lanzatech alcohol-to-jet SAF project. Um, and then outside of the sustainable aviation, we are seeing investment in electric flights. Right now, those flights are projected to go about 200 miles. So, you know, they're really not going to take you from New York to Los Angeles or anything like that. But they'll... Uh, they're presumed to cut costs on those shorter flights. They might even introduce plane flights that don't necessarily exist so far. And that's not necessarily part of the ICAO agreement. Well, it isn't. I shouldn't say necessarily. But I think it's important to note that like the signal of this agreement and over 190 countries agreeing that they're going to work towards this goal of zero emissions in aviation is I, it's a big deal. That's never happened before. Um, so that's what I wanted to know. And I just wanted to also bring up some of the, the actual policy that is being implemented alongside this big signal. I'm curious, you know, while, um, you know, electric aviation, you know, certainly has some potential applications, um, you know, for, such short range flights, uh, you know, is the actual amount of energy used per passenger mile, um, going to be competitive with, you know, ground transportation alternatives like trains? Uh, you know, is it even worthwhile pursuing that for, you know, for such a short range, you know, are you going to be able to carry enough people? Cause obviously, you know, it takes, it takes more energy to lift up an aircraft and then put it down again than it, than it probably does to move a train. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point. And at this point, maybe not. But also, still United is projecting that they'll have electric flights by 2030. They've invested a lot in this. Other airlines are investing in it. And I think the presumption is that battery capacity and ability has increased dramatically beyond what I don't know, 20 years ago, we ever would have said was possible. And I think there's an idea that, yes, the capability seems to be 200 miles roughly, or at least within that 150 to 250 mile range, but presumably in the future, it could be more. Um, 
we'll see what happens. I do think that's a good point though. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, hydrogen, um, yeah, and you also mentioned, you know, some of the other emissions like contrails, you know, being a, yeah. a potential problem. You know, obviously, if you're burning hydrogen, you are still generating contrails uh, from that. Uh, you know, you've got water vapor that that is the combustion product from uh, burning hydrogen. So, are there, you know, are there any efforts to address some of these other challenges? I think there are some. But it has been interesting. A lot of policy, like U.S. policy around SAF and aviation decarbonization has not focused on contrails at all. Um, And I think that's one of those side notes that when you read these articles, it's like at the last paragraph, oh, by the way, this doesn't address contrails or something like that. So we will see in the coming months and I guess years, hopefully months, whether those things start to get addressed, but really it seems to be these big goals of net zero by 2050, um, increasing production of sustainable aviation fuel SAF by 2030, that sort of thing is the big focus right now. One, one other area, uh, was, was, there, um, was there any discussion uh, in there at all about supersonic aviation, which you know, there's a couple of companies that are trying to revive that, uh, like Boom Supersonic, um, you know, and, you know, boom has been claiming, you know, that they would be carbon neutral by using SAF exclusively, uh, in their aircraft. But, um, you know, the, the challenge that they've got is that there don't seem to be any engine make manufacturers, uh, interested in actually developing engines for that plane, um, because they're all focused on reducing emissions from their higher volume products. Yeah. Well, that was not discussed um, for this agreement at all. I know there's been a bunch of news articles about Boom recently, but I don't think that was the focus at the IKO um, assembly session at all. All right. Thank you. I have one question. And maybe this is just um, another way to rephrase the contrast thing, but um, was there any discussion of um, SAF versus uh, petroleum-based fuels and and how they burn, you know, like whether one burns cleaner than the other, you know, aside from, I guess it's, you know, the airplane equivalent of tailboard emissions. Was there any discussion of that versus um, the overall carbon neutrality? Um, I think there has been, but I am not prepared to talk about the specifics on that. Um, and I think it is interesting, though, just because United, I guess it would have been about a year ago, they had their first uh, 100% like SAF flight from Chicago to DC, um, but they were still required to carry petroleum on board. Like you can only have 50% SAF on board. You have to have at least 50% of traditional fuel um, on board just because there are, I think, concerns still about the safety um, and like stuff like that. All right. Thanks, Edie. Uh, Jake. What I want to talk about is that last week or this week, it reported that Shell closed down all of its hydrogen filling stations in the UK. So it only had three sites left. Um, and it opened them between 2017 and 2019 to a lot of fanfare and a lot of enjoyment, but it seems that that has really ended. Uh, each of those stations cost about $2 million to install and about $2 million per year to keep running. 
and the lack of hydrogen-powered vehicles on the roads clearly didn't make it a worthwhile investment. Um, if you talk to Shell, what they claim is that uh, the tech has was prototype, kind of reached the end of its life. Shell is going to be moving forward. So at least for passenger vehicles, they're not focusing on hydrogen anymore, but their focus is to build these multimodal hubs for heavy-duty trucks in the UK. Um, they're, the person, the organization who operates the Motive states that the sites are just too small to upgrade to these larger vehicles and these future technologies that they're going to be focusing on. And so now that leaves uh, about 11 public hydrogen refueling stations open in the entire UK compared to about, what, over 50,000 public charging ports for EVs in the UK. Uh they're, the focus seems to be taking that and moving it to long-distance trucks. Um, the Everyone seems to be moving on to EVs in terms of passenger vehicles, but with long-distance trucks, there's still discussion about whether these long-distance will convert to batteries. And there's logistic operators who favor hydrogen over batteries for long-haul transport, including Amazon and DHL. Uh, their focus being that like double-shifted trucks or trucks that they drive for two shifts and they switch drivers in between. Uh, require faster refueling than current electrical you know, batteries can be recharged. So hydrogen is advantageous for that. And that extra strain on the grid can be really alleviated by focusing these bigger vehicles to be all hydrogen. Uh, Shell is still developing its hydrogen network in Germany. So as of 2021 in June, there's about 91 stations in Germany, which is significantly more than the rest of Europe combined. So maybe this isn't the death knell for hydrogen in Europe overall, but from numbers that I could find, there's only about maybe 500 to 1,000 hydrogen vehicles registered in Germany as of this last April. So we'll have to see how things go moving forward. So it sounds like um, there, there's a, a shift in focus from light-duty personal vehicles uh, running on fuel cells to uh, larger heavy-duty vehicles instead. Yeah, that seems to be at least what Shell is reporting. And if you look at what's happening around that, it seems to be the case. Um, Hyundai is selling, sending more fuel cell trucks to Germany, it seems, fairly often. Um, it's just curious to see what's going to happen, you know, if there are barely any, you know, fuel cell refilling stations in the UK, who's going to send a truck there? All right. Well, thanks, Jake. Um, and I'll, I will finish it up uh, with uh, a little bit of a focus on micromobility and uh, some of the uh, smaller vehicles. Um, there's been several announcements in the last couple of weeks uh, about uh, a pullback in both uh, small delivery vehicles as well as uh, uh, micromobility. Uh, just yesterday, Bird, uh, which was one of the pioneers in deploying shareable electric scooters, kick scooters, uh, announced a major retrenchment. Uh, they're pulling out of three countries in Europe, um, including uh, Germany, Sweden, and Norway. Uh, and they're also going to be ending their service in what they say is several dozen U.S. cities, mostly smaller markets. And one of the things that they highlighted was a lack of um, any sort of regulatory framework in most of those. It, basically, what it seems to come down to for them uh, is that there are, uh, in those markets, there's too many players uh, trying to compete, um, and they can't generate enough revenue to be viable, uh, which is 
kind of the problem that we saw, you know, early in the early years of the ride hailing business, um, because there's a relatively low entry uh, or barrier to entry in that market. And uh, so everybody was competing for market share based on, on pricing and nobody was able to generate enough revenue to even remotely approach profitability. Um, and, you know, this is this is a challenge. We've seen a number of other uh, micro mobility companies also pull back on their business in, in the last few years, including Lime, Spin and uh, and others. So, um, you know, it's it's a it's a tough challenge. You know, and in many ways, it's very much like the, the taxi market uh, has long been You know, part of the reason why the taxi market um, has the traditional taxi market has been able to succeed and, and thrive in a lot of places in the past was because of restrictions on the number of vehicles that were deployed. Um, and, you know, that that in, ensured that you had enough utilization of the vehicles uh, as well as, you know, prices that were high enough to be sustainable and ec- economically sustainable. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things, you know, looking forward that uh, you know we've talked about here at Guidehouse in the past, and that I've certainly written about, is uh, you know with the potential advent of robo taxis uh, and other automated vehicles, is we need to have some sort of policy framework around um, how many vehicles can be deployed within a given area um, to ensure that we're not just flooding the market with AVs uh, and trying to make sure that they, um, you know, that, that we're not um, going down the path we had with ride hailing over the past decade, where as ride hailing boomed in a lot of cities, we saw traffic congestion also boom with it. Um, so, uh, you know, because, because there was no restrictions on that, on, on the ride hailing business as there was with taxis. And that's the same sort of thing we're seeing in the micromobility space. So if, as we go into robo taxis, you know, we're, we're going to need some sort of policy framework uh, that puts probably some restrictions on how many vehicles can be deployed. Um, another related area where we've seen some pullback um, in recent weeks has been on the delivery bots, automated delivery bots. There have been quite a few companies developing this technology for last mile deliveries. You know, these are usually smaller uh, sidewalk bots, um, you know, or bots that can operate in, um, and, you know, in bike lanes and so on, um, and. Uh, just in the last week, uh, we've had two big announcements um, from <clears throat> both from FedEx, which had a partnership with DECA, uh, which is uh, the, the company um, that uh, was founded by um, uh, Dean Kamen, uh, the, the inventor of the Segway. Uh, they were working on a, uh, a last mile delivery bot that was able to climb stairs. It was based on some technology that DECA had developed for wheelchairs that could go up and down stairs. Um, they, FedEx announced the other day that they are suspending development of that vehicle. They've been testing it in a, in a few different markets for the past couple of years. Uh, and then the other one was uh, from Amazon. They announced the end of their development program for their Scout delivery bot, um, which uh, was a, a smaller vehicle. It's a little six-wheeled vehicle. And there was a number of companies developing very similar vehicles. They basically look like a, a cooler on wheels, on, on six wheels. Uh, and they typically have a range of about two to three miles. Um, and uh, they were are also ending development of that vehicle. Uh, and earlier this year, we saw the, the end of uh, another program uh, 
uh, with uh, Yandex, which is uh, the Russian search engine company that also, like uh, like Google, had a, uh, a self-driving uh, division. And uh, they had been testing their uh, Yandex rover here in Ann Arbor, uh, and they had done a deal with DoorDash uh, to, de- uh, to deploy their vehicles on over 200 college campuses uh, to do deliveries to dorms and, and, and residences. Um, and that, that program was canceled due to uh, sanctions due to the war in Ukraine. But these more recent uh, pullbacks by FedEx and uh, and Amazon, both companies that you know are fairly big companies, you know, that can certainly afford to do this sort of thing. They're clearly seeing some some challenges around trying to build a business around these vehicles. And you know, given the current economic conditions and the potential for a recession, an economic recession, um, you know, there there seems to be a lot of just general pullback uh, from making these large-scale investments in programs that might not generate significant revenue and certainly not profits for many years to come. I think, you know, eventually we will probably see more of a revival in this sector, um, but I think it, it may it may take a while. Um, and, you know, we've also seen, you know, look, just looking at the AV space, of the, the companies that have gone public over the last couple of years, like Aurora Innovations and and some others, um, and they uh, they have uh, uh, all seen their stock prices plummet um, over this past year as the the general uh, financial market uh, situation has gotten worse. So I think you know every, everybody's looking at the economy and saying, yeah, I think you know maybe we need to stay a little more focused on uh, on our core business and uh, not overinvest in these ancillary areas for the time being. How much of this is, is the um, chicken and egg with infrastructure? Uh, you know, like we're, at, I would say, you know, maybe we're at a point where delivery bots could be viable in certain situations and uh, you, know, you could have bird like scooters in places, but you have, you have a problem where most of our roads are, it's similar to, you know, cycling. It's like, well, we, nobody's biking so why would we have a bike lane right? right but if you make a bike lane and people bike you know right now most of the roads we have are made for cars and the sidewalk is made for people and there's not a lot of extra space so i mean in in your opinion is it is it at the point where that's the biggest barrier now is sort of creating multi-use roads if we actually want to change the way we look at mobility um you know as primarily car based yeah i think that's certainly a part of it um, you know, some of that more, more of, of those types of changes need to happen. I think one of the interesting things that we saw over the last, um, couple of years during the pandemic is a lot of cities did, you know, took advantage of the opportunity, particularly in 2020, when traffic was dramatically reduced during lockdown periods to do some road configuration, put in more protected bike lanes, um, you know, and, and that has certainly helped, you know, in places like, uh, like New York, you know, I was in Manhattan recently and, you know, there's a lot of protected bike lanes in Manhattan now, and a lot of, a lot more people riding bikes around the city. Um, same thing in San Francisco. Um, not, not probably not enough, but, uh, it's, it's been a move in the right direction, but it's still challenging, um, you know, and, and for operators of these delivery bots in particular, um, you know, the, the, regulatory challenges they're, they're the, pol- the regulatory policies have not 
necessarily been clear in many markets as to where they are allowed to operate. Um, you know, most of these are capable of operating either on sidewalks or in bike lanes if they're allowed. Um, in some cases, they're not. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of the, the focus has been um, on deploying them, you know, for example, in college campus areas um, where there are walkways um, in many cases that can be better suited to deploying these types of vehicles. But yeah, it's, there's, there's definitely that chicken and egg component of the, the infrastructure side of it. You know, where can we use them, you know, and do the, is there enough of those spaces that are accessible for these vehicles to build a business around the use of these vehicles? I have a comment about the scooters, especially in the context of DC, because I know, oh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, I know the past few years, there's been a number of discussions from the DC Department of Transportation around them. And I think it was in early 20 or late 2020, they required scooters to have lock two um, abilities. And there was a lot of pushback from the scooter companies um, because they were already losing membership at that point. But everyone in DC was so excited because we were sick of having all these scooters on our sidewalks. And I think the other big thing that maybe was challenging to them the past year is DC gave every city um, resident or district resident a free capital bike share membership. And so we could use... um, free bikes basically to get around because of issues with the metro transportation system um, over the past year. And e-bikes, I think it's it's incredibly cheap. Like usually each trip take costs less than $2 um, to use. And I can imagine, I don't know if you have comment or perspective on this, that that would hurt a lot of these private scooter companies if every resident has this free option of micromobility. I'm guessing that other cities are doing similar things, incentivizing maybe more of the bikes rather than the, the scooters themselves. Yeah. I mean, generally, um, you know, there, there's to some degree, it's a zero sum game, you know, between bikes, scooters, uh, you know, and uh, you know, and, and other options. Um, You know, obviously you're you're not going to use, multiple modes at the same time. Um, and if, you know, if a city chooses to subsidize a bike program, um, that's going to be detrimental to other modes like scooters. Uh, and, you know, the, the question is, you know, what, what's the right policy decision for a city? You know, what's the right approach uh, to, to take as far as which, which modes you're going to, uh, to support or subsidize? You know, do you pick one? Do you pick one winner, or do you make multiple options available to the residents of the city and say, okay, you know, wh- whichever you want to choose, you know, we'll we'll give you uh, a subsidized subscription or, or or membership for for that mode, and you you can pick the one that's right for your use case, um, which might you know might be a better option, you know, provide flexibility. Uh, for people and provide the opportunity for more, more options to compete. Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, you know, if you do that, you know, it's kind of, kind of goes back to what bird was saying where, 
you know, in the absence of some sort of policy framework that, um, you know, that helps to ensure that there's enough utilization of any one, you might find that if there's, if there's too many options, none of them get used enough to be commercially viable. So it's, it, it's a tough, it's a tough choice. I mean, you, you, you don't, I don't think we necessarily want uh, regulators or government, you know, making, you know, picking winners, um, you know, out of, out of a group of choices. Um, but, you know, at, at some point you have to make some decisions as well. So. That, um, that made me think of a point too, that, you know, you mentioned these are e-bikes and, um, it's, I think it's an example of when you're trying to change or evolve something that, um, if you can fit into the existing framework that really lowers the threshold, right? Like, E-bikes and and um, you know electric scooters are not all that different in terms of the components or even the way you use them, but we already have a lot of um, infrastructure built up for bicycles and people are familiar with bicycles, and you know you can say look the scooter takes up less space, you don't have to pedal, you know you can stand on it, you don't have to sit on you don't have to sit on it, um, you know all of that makes sense, but here's a bike that's easier to pedal. <laughs> it's a lot easier to understand. And I think that extends across other places to mobility too. I mean, you look at um, automated driving, we're, we're just making, it's sort of like the same car, but you don't drive it anymore instead of saying, uh, you know, make cars smaller or, you know, uh, get in Jetson-like pods. It's uh, a lot of getting something off the ground, I think revol- uh, involves a lot of like removing the, the extra friction of, a new idea sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely space to watch, at least with that would be, I mean, Chicago is just, uh, they're still think trialing it. I don't know if the results have really come in yet, but, uh, the lift Divi program now has bike, uh, scooters that fit into, uh, the same framework, same docking stations, um, same, same network. Um, there are still other scooters around. I see a lot of lime and I see a lot of uh, ride scooters around, but, um, this is all very new. This has started happening in the last, you know, five, six months. So it could be an interesting space to watch to see how much, you know, getting those subsidies and getting that framework from a government could make scooters actually a viable, you know, idea as long as they fit into an existing structure, like Mike was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a, it, it's a tough, it's going to be a tough evolution, you know, as we find the right the right solutions, you know, for every city. And there's not necessarily one, you know, one right, one silver bullet solution that works everywhere. Uh, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see different solutions in different places and larger cities will probably be able to support multiple different types of modes, mobility modes. Uh, smaller cities might have to, you know, pick one or another, um, you know, to ensure that there's enough utilization to be worthwhile. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, Been a great conversation and uh, we'll talk to everybody next time.